All right, so come on, let's welcome Stu. He's coming, he's coming to share the word. God bless you, sir. Thanks, man. I don't think I've ever preached behind an industrial-sized lectern before. I was nervous that I'd have to get up whilst John was still leading worship, and I'd feel like I was in a scene from The Hobbit, you know, where everything is just, like, bigger, about, like, twice as big as you, you know? Um, but happily, it hasn't happened, and uh, I'm just going to move it to one side and then not use it. <laughs> uh, it like Joseph said, it is... Um, I want, sorry, just leave it there, that's fine, because I, I need my phone, otherwise... We're never leaving. Not because I want to make a phone call, you understand, because it's the time. Uh, and um, yeah, it is, a, it is honestly a real privilege to be here. Um, and it, we've done these joint services maybe three or four times. And uh, before we started doing these, honestly, my experience of doing joint things with other churches was not always positive. Since we've started doing them, I've looked forward to them massively because it's just such a brilliant environment to be in with a room where there aren't enough seats for people and the worship just kicks off um, like that. So it's a real privilege. And um, a guys asked me if I would preach. Um, Joseph said I could preach for 45 minutes. I told him I'd do it in half an hour. And uh, he looked at me with the look of someone as if he'd just told me I won the lottery and I didn't want the money. Like, what kind of man is this? Um, but we'll see how it goes. I'm actually going to read, it's quite a long story um, and actually quite an obscure one from the Old Testament, from the book of Two Kings. So if you've got a Bible, you can read along. Um, it doesn't matter if you haven't got a Bible because I'll read the story out to you and we'll kind of pick up on a few things as we go along. I'm just, I'll just start reading. It's um, chapter 6, verse 24. And it says about Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now you thought Brexit was bad, but when was the last time you had to pay a, you know, five shekels of silver for a fourth part of a cab of dove's dung? Uh, it's basically telling us things were really bad. Five shekels of silver was like six months of the average worker's salary. So you're paying half a year's wage for bird poo, basically. And uh, it says this, Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we might eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. And when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So we joked about it at first, but the reason this story is included is to help you understand this is basically terrible. This, is, this isn't just like, oh, there's no food around. Like People are desperate. They're getting to the point where they're considering or actually eating their own children. There's uh, the king who's supposed to be the one who's leading them through this is no help at all. He's basically saying, what can I do? I'm stuck. 
And it's basically a terrible situation that they're in. And basically he's blaming God and he's blaming Elisha, who's God's servant, even though actually that's not the, the real reason that they're stuck. Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. And the king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with him, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a sayer of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two sayers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. In other words, prices are going to go back to normal. Everything's going to be restored back to the way it normally is. And then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you will see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Just goes on a bit longer. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let's enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we will die there. And if we sit here, we'll die also. So, come on, let's go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we'll live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel was hired against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And then they came back and entered another tent, and carried off things from it, and went and hid them. But then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we're silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let's go and tell the king's household. So they came and called the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. And then the gatekeepers called out and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we're hungry. Therefore, they've gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we'll take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, well, let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent after them, after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king, and then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sayer of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two sayers of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. 
Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. <sighs> Amen. <laughs> Let's just pray quickly. Too many people dying in that Bible story. We need to pray. Father, I thank you that this is your word. And even though it's thousands of years past and kind of obscure and different from us, I pray that you'd speak to us and help us to hear you through it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So I love these kind of stories for a, a number of reasons. One is just, they're just interesting um, and it's just kind of a dynamic story. You want to know the end of it. Stories like this, they help us understand how God works and they help us understand how we as people respond to God's word. Because when Elisha speaks the word of God, people respond in different ways. And actually, even though it's 3,000 years ago, human beings are still the same. And so when God speaks, there's still the same challenges for us. Will we hear it with faith or will we respond with unbelief? And uh, that's, I guess, particularly one of the challenges that I want us to think about today. I also love stories like this because they're not just obscure stories tucked away in bits of the Bible that you rarely reach. They are actually, some of these stories, they're profound because they're not just small stories tucked away. They actually tell us what the whole story of the Bible is. They're, they're telling us the story of not just a few people back in Samaria thousands of years ago, but they're actually telling us the story that the whole Bible is trying to tell us, that humanity is locked up and enslaved and that there's a spiritual famine that everyone suffers from and that it's desperate and that the kings and rulers of the world don't know what to do about it and that left to our own devices, we're completely stuck and we can't do anything about it, but that God speaks. And then when God speaks, if we believe him, it changes everything. And that's, that's the story of the whole Bible. That's actually the story of the whole world. And so there's stories like this tucked away in Scripture that when we read them, we actually get reminded of the big story, which is the story that we're all caught up in. And I just want to kind of pick a few of the people that are involved in this story um, and try and apply them to us because we'll find ourselves as we read them. We'll find the temptations that we face in the lives of these people. And the first one is the captain. Uh, he's the captain on, on whose arm the king leans. So he's a trusted guy. He's one of the king's top guys. And when Elisha speaks, he completely dismisses it. His cynicism has completely gripped his heart. And in one sense, you can understand why. Perhaps you think, well, they are locked up. You know, they've been stuck there for a long time. But in another sense, Elisha is, he's not just a random guy. Elisha is God's prophet. And over the last years, Elisha has time and time again spoken the word of God and been proved right and done miraculous things and been proved right. So he's not just some guy who's popped up. He's the proven messenger of God who's speaking God's word. And he speaks this amazing promise and says, you're completely stuck. There's nothing you can do about it. But God says he's going to turn it around in a day. And the captain says, even if the Lord was to open windows from heaven, how could this be? It's like you can just hear that it's dripping with cynicism. And that is a danger for us. That when God speaks to us, instead of hearing it with faith, we, we're kind of conditioned by our circumstances and by the world that we live in to actually hear it with a cynical heart. 
And when we do that, we rob the word of God of all its power. It's like God himself is trying to light a flame. Our hearts are cold and God's trying to kind of kindle this flame in our hearts. And every time he kind of gets this flame into life, we just put it out with our unbelief and with our cynicism. And it can be quite of a self-fulfilling thing because it's like God speaks, but you, you, as God speaks, you rob it of its power because you think, yeah, that, I've heard that before. And so the thing that God speaks never comes to be because you robbed it of its power with your unbelief and you prove yourself right. Oh, God didn't do that thing. I knew he wouldn't. Well, no, God didn't do that thing because you didn't believe him. God didn't stir that thing up in your heart because when he, when he started the fire, you put it out because you were nervous, because you were fearful. And that's true for loads of us. If you're here, you're not a Christian, that could be a real challenge for you. Like you, you're here, maybe you're investigating Christianity. Maybe you've got a friend who's a Christian. They speak to you, they tell you things. And, and maybe sometimes there's like a flicker in you of hope. Could that be true? I wish that were true. But then there's this other thing that, that just dampens it down. And you're thinking, I don't know if there's anything in this. Well, Honestly, the way that we receive God's promises, the way that we re- receive what God wants to do in our hearts is actually we, when God speaks, we receive it with faith. If you're a Christian and your spiritual life has taken a bit of a nosedive and you feel stuck and you feel like nothing is changing, I feel enslaved, I've tried loads of things, nothing's happening, then you need to be the opposite. You need to be like, like this, waiting for the whisper of God waiting for the, the smallest spark of flame. And when it comes, instead of putting it out, you need to be there with your big board, you know, wafting it into life and, and asking God, whatever you say, I want to believe it. Because the way to spiritual growth, quite simply, is to believe what God says. It's when God speaks to you, you hear it and you believe it and you act on it. And when you read something in the Bible and you think, I don't know how that works, you think, I believe it anyway. I'm trusting God and I'm acting on it. And that produces life. And it, and it testifies to you the positive way. You're like, then, then, then you, you, you test, like the Bible says, you test and approve the goodness of God's will and God's plan by believing it and acting on it and seeing how good it is. And so some of us here today, we just need to put ourselves in the, we know that we're the, in the story, we're the captain. When, when we hear God speak, when we read the scriptures, there's something in us that's putting out the flame that God's trying to do. The thing that God's trying to stir up, we're missing it. And actually, what we need to do today is repent of our unbelief, ask God to keep speaking to us. He will, because he's amazingly gracious. I don't want you to walk out feeling like, I don't want to stand on the door in case there's a crush at the end and I get trampled to death, you know, because of my unbelief. I'm not, I'm not putting that on you. God will keep speaking to you. But one day you will stand before him and he will he will be able to recite to you all the times that he spoke, all the fires that he tried to light and all the times that you put them out. And so I want to warn you not to be caught and stuck in your own unbelief because that is the work that, it's actually the work that the devil wants to do in us is actually to rob us of faith. Another guy in the story is the king. And uh, the king's not a great hero in this story. Um, but there is this kind of moment, isn't there, when he hears the message come back, the Syrians have fled. And it's a brilliant response because he's like, again, you, you see the kind of the uncertainty in him. It's like, it, hang on, 
that sounds too good to be true. Like, nice idea. I wish it was true, but I don't know if I can just believe that because that, that would just make me, would that make me gullible? And sometimes if you're investigating Christianity or you're just a Christian, you're trying to move on in your Christian life, you have that kind of question as well. Like someone tells you the gospel and you're like, someone tells you the good news and you're like, hang on, you're telling me that God just forgives and I'm going to you know, be with him forever. And you find, yeah, that, that sounds too good to be true. In fact, C.S. Lewis said once that the thing that's most difficult to believe about Christianity is how good the gospel is. It's almost like, hang on, that, that sounds too good to be true. And in, a, in the world we live in, when something sounds too good to be true, it's normally not. And so we, again, we're trained to be suspicious. But I've got a bit of time for the king at this point, because in the end he decides, let's test it out. Let's send a couple of horses, see what's going on. You know, we'll, we'll play it safe, find out what's going on, and, and we'll go from there. And if it proves to be true, then we can follow up and we, we're not losing so much. And and it might be that that's where you are at the moment. Or it might be that you've got a friend that's exactly there. And uh, I hope I'm not shoehorning this into the scripture. But honestly, that is what Alpha is about. Alpha is for people who maybe have heard something about Christianity. And they're like, I don't know if I can fully just go for it. Because I'm not sure. But, but I want to send a couple of horses to go and find out if this is true or not. And if it is, then I'm in. And, and if you're here and that's you, and you're kind of, even your presence here is you kind of saying, well, I've heard something, sounds good, but I want to check it out before I commit. Then I, I would just say, well done. And actually, we want to, the reason we want to invite the whole borough to a small Costa coffee shop in East Greenwich is because we have, many of us in this room, have tasted and tested and found out it is true. And so we want other people to come and investigate that for themselves we we're actually quite confident that if you investigate christianity you'll find it's not just a made-up story by some people that were bored one day in second century northern egypt or something you know like some people think it's, it's actually convincing it holds up it stands up to analysis you can ask questions about christianity and get good answers back and so it's okay for you to come on an alpha course to send out a couple of horses so to speak and find out what is going on here if this is true I want to know more but if it's not I'm not ready to commit myself to it yet so if you're here and that's you we would love you to come on this alpha course and you can ask as many questions as you like and you can ask any question that you want and we are not scared that you might ask us a question that makes us realize oh no we made a mistake <laughs> You know, because actually Christianity has, been, has proved itself over 2,000 years. It's been tested, it's been attacked, it's been attempted, attempted to be undermined, it's been analysed. The Bible has been analysed more than any other historical document in all of history. And there are still millions, billions of people who base their lives on its truthfulness. It's unlikely, not meaning to be rude, that you're going to find the question that undermines the whole thing and pulls the thread. So we would love you to come to Alpha. And if you're here and you're Christian, you've got friends that are like that, that's why we're saying, come along to this Alpha course because you can ask any question you want. And we believe that you, would, you could find, you could send out a couple of horses, very little cost to you, nine Wednesday evenings in January, February and March, and you could discover that your whole world has changed 
and that the, the problems of this world, the spiritual famine, the, the, the lack of hope, actually have an answer and that God has done something amazing and you just didn't know about it. And so some of us are like the king and, that, and that's okay because we want to invite you in. And it's funny because um, normally at this point in a story, like you've got like the bad guys, the captain, the, the king, it doesn't seem to be doing very well. And so you want to find a hero, don't you? Like you want to go like, but the rest of us are like, and the alternative position in this story is the four lepers at the gate. They're the outcasts of the city. They're outside the city because they're, they're leprous and they're contagious, so they're not allowed to come in. So they're basically sitting at the gate of this city, unable to come in, unable to go out, and they're stuck there. And they reason, well, we're going to die anyway, so we might as well go and see what's going on with the Syrians. And uh, in so doing, they stumble across this amazing miracle that God has promised through Elisha and then done in history, in actual reality. And um, there's different pictures in the Bible of what it means to be a Christian, but this is quite a good one. To be a Christian is to be someone who had no hope and had very little to offer, but who amazingly by the grace of God in a way that we don't fully understand, we discovered on this miracle that God had done without us knowing about it and that basically saves us, rescues us, and there's enough to go around for the whole world. That, that, is, that is a pretty good image and picture of what it means to be a Christian. It's not the only one, but it's a pretty good one. And so there, is a, there are very few heroes in this story. I know most of us would think, yeah, but I'd like to be Elisha. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm just sitting there. Yeah, the king's about to come. Don't let him in. Done. <laughs> Promise. Next day. Done. You know, we'd like to be Elisha, but we're, none of us are Elisha. Jesus is more like Elisha. Most of us, we're the king, we're the captain, or we're the lepers. And the lepers have this amazing discovery. And, and again, I think what they do is quite instructive because they go in and when they, when they discover that the camp has, has gone, you know, it's deserted, their first thing is, great, let's eat. <laughs> And, and I think that's fair enough, isn't it? Like you're really hungry, like you find something, yes, let's eat. Right, there's silver and gold, quick. Let's go and bury it somewhere. I think that is what I would probably do. Bury it, come back, let's do this again. You know, there's no one here. Eat again, bury it. I can do this for days, you know. Let's just keep going. And then, and, and I think there's something quite instructive about that because when we hear the gospel, I think it's right that our first response, when we hear the good news and you hear God has done something that, I didn't even know about, I'm nothing to do with it, but I'm the one that's gonna benefit from it. The first response is, is actually, rightly, just to enjoy it. That's why when we come together on a Sunday, the first thing we did this morning was we just enjoyed what God has done. We, just, we worshiped, not because worship is a duty that Christians need to do, although in one sense it is that, but more than that, it's a privilege. We actually get to come together to remind each other and to enjoy together God is the king he's reigning over everything he loves me with an everlasting love a sinner condemned unclean this is marvelous this is wonderful and I'm reminding myself of it because it's like having a feast because you're discovering God did this and I love that about this story no one Elisha promised it he didn't even know probably how God was going to do it 
But God did this thing and no one even knew about it. And it makes you think back to the cross of Christ when spiritually speaking, God did something then again in history that was gonna change the dynamics of the whole world, that was gonna purchase by for us this amazing privilege and inheritance of forgiveness and freedom. In Colossians 2, it describes it, and it describes that when Jesus was dying on the cross, God was nailing our sins to the cross so that they would die with him. And it describes that Jesus was triumphing over all the powers of darkness. So the prince of darkness who'd held the world captive was being defeated at that moment. And yet, nobody knew that God was doing that. Literally nobody knew. His closest disciples didn't understand that God was doing that. The people in Jerusalem at that time were just tucking into their evening meal, day meal, whatever. The people around the world didn't know that whilst God was achieving the ultimate spiritual victory, nobody knew it was happening. All of them that have discovered it are like four lepers who stumbled on it one day and discovered, who knew? God didn't leave this world completely on its own. God hasn't left us in our sin. God has intervened. He came himself as a man and defeated death, the, the, our biggest enemy, and dealt with our sin, our biggest problem, so that there's this amazing spiritual feast of goodness for us to enjoy. Hallelujah. That's why Christians sometimes, not always, but sometimes get excited when they worship. They get excited when they worship because it's like God did this thing. I didn't deserve any of it, but I'm one of the people that's discovered it. And it's right that our first response is just to enjoy it and celebrate it and thank God for it and like feed ourselves on it until we're full. But there's also this moment where they've presumably fed themselves sufficiently, got enough gold and silver tucked away <laughs> where they go, hang on. We probably shouldn't just stay here, should we? And, and, it's, and the clue is in this verse, isn't it? This is a day of good news. This, this isn't something for us to keep to ourselves. There's enough here to feed the whole city. We're not even gonna miss out. In fact, it's gonna be better for us if we tell everyone else than if we just stay here on our own because more people can come and enjoy it with us and we get to be part of the privilege of, in, of taking people who are hungry to food, we get to be like the providers in a way even though it wasn't anything that we did. And they reason we should go and do it. And they do and the city comes out and it changes everything. And there has to be that moment in the life of a Christian as well where we're enjoying what God has done and we realize, hang on, this, this isn't just about me, is it? Because there, there are people still in spiritual famine not knowing that God has done this. There's enough for them here, but there's millions of people that don't know that this is what God has done. And so I do wanna go and tell them. And it, I was kind of hesitant at this point, I guess, I am hesitant at this point, because it's easy for just to kind of, for all of us to go, oh yeah, we really should do that. And I don't really want it to feel like that. I want it to feel more like the privilege and the opportunity the lepers, what they understood was, we are here with this amazing feast and everyone in the city, they're paying, you know, five shekels for a quarter of a 
dab of the dove's dung. You know, the contrast is pretty sharp. I think for quite a lot of us as Christians, that isn't the way that we picture the spiritual dynamics of the world. Part of our problem is that we feel more like, you know when you go to a restaurant and you order your meal and you tuck in and then the waitress or waiter walks with someone else's food and you look at it and you're like, oh, probably should have had that. And then you kind of just kind of over your shoulder looking at someone else's meal thinking, ah, oh, I should have gone for the steak. You know, like I didn't, I wasn't quite sure. And, and I think as Christians, we sometimes think like that. Well, like here's us as Christians. Yeah, we've gone for the chicken. They've gone for the steak. And we, maybe we sometimes feel like, or maybe the other way, like you have your meal and sometimes, occasionally, it doesn't happen often, but you think, yes, I ordered the right thing. Yes. I was, I was umming and ahhing the chicken or the steak. What do I go for? But I went for the chicken and it comes with chips. And yes, I got the right things. Massive chicken, you know, steak looks a bit paltry, you know, a bit weak, you know. Glad I didn't go for it. I think sometimes as Christians, we feel like that. And we feel like, therefore, our evangelistic message is, the steak's all right, but the chicken's better if you want to come over, you know. Whereas the lepers, they were like, we've got a feast and you're starving. And actually, if you read through the Bible, that's the way the Bible describes the contrast between Christians and those that don't know Christ. It doesn't use like, oh, Christians have got the edge. <laughs> it's like, no, the contrast is light and darkness. The contrast is life and death. And so when we understand that as Christians, I think for most of us, it's not a difficult step for us to go, I want other people to hear about this because I'm not even going to miss out. I don't even have to share my chicken. There's more chicken. I can have as much chicken as I want and still let everyone else know about the chicken. Like, this is a good deal. And, and so part of, the, part of the deal is it's actually right for us to tuck in to the chicken so that we can say to other people, you should have the chicken. But we need to understand we're not talking to the person on the table next to us. We're talking to the person outside the restaurant who's stuck and can't come in. And we're, we're, you get where I'm going with that. <laughs> I don't need to spell it all out. And so I'd, I'd love us to hear, we're going to pray in a few minutes. Uh, maybe not minutes because Joseph's just held up a bit of paper with naught written on it. Uh, well, I'm hoping that's not like a rating for my sermon. Like one of the judges, you know, like 10, you know. Mate, sit down. <laughs> but he did hold one up earlier that said 10 and 20 and 30. So I think I'm... Maybe I'm safe. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so this is what I'd love us to think about in terms of application. Because sometimes at this point, I think a lot of us, we think, yeah, I'm not very good at this. And there are people that are really good at this. And I'm never going to be like them. I wish I was. Maybe I will be. But I'm not. And it's quite hard. You think, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm going to go out on the streets this afternoon and shout the good news. You know. So here's my challenge to you. Think about where you are at and do something that you haven't been doing for the last few months. If you don't know, if you're a Christian, you don't, literally just don't know any people who don't know Jesus to even tell. In the next few weeks, try and make some friends. I know for some of you that's a challenge. <laughs> for some of us, it's a challenge. It's hard. Just meeting people, making friends. It's, in this city, in lots of cities, it's difficult. But ask God to move you one notch along. Meet some people. Make that your prayer. Or maybe you know some, you do have some friends that are non-Christians, but at the moment you don't pray for them. You've got no expectation that God can act in their life. 
I challenge you to hear the promise of God that this is available to them and to begin to pray and to dream about what might it look like if God intervened in their life. If I understand that actually they're spiritually famished and I have got the, the key for them to discover the immeasurable riches of Christ, then what would it look like if they discovered it and then prayed that God would do it? Maybe you're already doing that and you're comfortable with that. Then I challenge you to start getting out on the streets and to meet some people that you don't know and to start telling them. Maybe you already do that. I challenge you to take some steps you've never stepped before. And so I don't think all of us are likely to walk out of here and suddenly become the most powerful evangelists. But can you imagine if we all walked out of here and we all went one step along the spectrum and we all became a bit more prayerful, a bit more engaged, a bit more bold. Can you imagine what that would do to the probably thousands of people that we interact with together through the day? It would have a massive impact. And our prayer for this Alpha course, like Joseph said, is that dozens of people come, dozens of people hear, dozens of people respond. If they're just sending out two horses, we're confident that lots of them are gonna discover the message is true and it's available for them. Let's just pray quickly. Well, I'll pray quickly and then I think Joseph's gonna come and lead us in prayer. Why don't we stand? That will help us, I'm sure. Because I'd love us to, I'd love us just to pray for ourselves and to pray for one another. And we'll, so in a minute, we'll get into maybe twos and threes and um, we'll just pray for one another. Just, just to be clear, there are very few spiritual heroes in this room. In lots of ways, actually, lots of you are spiritual heroes, but I don't think any of us are standing here thinking, everyone should probably come and learn from me. You know, most of us feel like, oh yeah, I'm a leper that stumbled on the grace of God. And therefore, we need what Jesus said when he said, wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you and you'll receive power to be witnesses. We need God's empowering to be the witnesses that we wanna be, to take a step of faith into what God wants for us. So we're just, in a minute, just gonna pray for one another for that. Um, but first, I'd just love to pray for us. So if you wanna receive the Holy Spirit to, to receive his power to be a witness, then I'd love to invite you to raise your hands and uh, to pray along with me as I'm praying for us. Father, first, we just wanna thank you for this amazing thing that you've done in history, when no one else knew about it, you were working a miracle, Lord. You were sending an army that we didn't see coming, Lord. And you were sending the, uh, the prince of darkness fleeing from you. Lord, I thank you that for many of us here, we have found that, we've discovered there's riches in you that are available to us at no cost to us because you paid the cost yourself. Father God, I pray for us now that you would empower us. I pray that we would receive your Holy Spirit to be witnesses. I pray for our workplaces, I pray for our schools and universities and our neighborhoods. I pray, Lord, that we would be well-fed on the good news. We would feast on the goodness of being loved and known by the King of all kings and then we would announce it 
to others, that you would open doors for us to announce it. Come and give us boldness, Lord. I pray for boldness in our hearts that comes from your spirit filling us and empowering us. I pray you breathe on us now as we pray for one another, that we'd encourage one another with our prayers, that we would be honest with one another about where we're at, Lord, that there'd be no pretense in our hearts trying to pretend we're more than we really are, Lord, that we would know that we are just simple people who discovered an amazing God. Come, Holy Spirit. Um, we're gonna let's just pray for one another for a few minutes. If if you're if you're hearing a guest and you're you're not up for this, that's fine. You can just if people offer to pray with you, you can just say, "No, I'm alright. I'm just I'm just sending out my two horses." You know. You can just say that's absolutely fine. There's no pressure. But if you, many of us, I think, would, would love to just pray for one another and ask God to help us. So don't be shy if you're sitting next to someone you've never met before. We'll just introduce each other. I think just maybe threes or fours is probably best. And we'll just take five or ten minutes just to pray for one another quickly. And then in a few minutes, Abby's going to come and lead us in some prayer for our borough.